Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Usually this stereotype goes like this. There are character actors and there are stars. A character actor maybe shows up in a couple scenes, maybe even five minutes. And in that moment, they make the film. My guest, Tony Shalhoub, can do that. A star, though, you build the whole movie or TV show around. They're relatable, charming, vulnerable. My guest, Tony Shalhoub, can do that, too. He's a veteran of both the big and small screens. He's had unforgettable parts in movies like Barton Fink, Men in Black, and Quick Change. He starred in movies like Big Night and TV shows like Wings, and of course, for many years, the hit detective series, Monk. He's also starred in the Amazon show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It's a dramedy set in the late 50s. Rachel Brosnahan plays the title character, Midge Maisel. At the beginning of the show, Midge was a housewife living in Manhattan who put her old life behind her to take up stand-up comedy. She left her husband, took her kids, and moved back in with her parents. And in fits and starts, her stand-up comedy career takes off. My guest Tony Shalhoub plays Abe Weissman, Midge's dad. It's a role that's won awards for Tony, including an Emmy. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel just concluded its fifth and final season last month. When Tony and I talked in 2019, it was the launch of its second season. In season two, Midge is still living with her family. Her mother, Rose, has moved out of the apartment. She fled to Paris. And at first, it hasn't really sunk in for Abe. After all, Rose has a big party coming up back home. But in the scene we're about to hear, it finally dawns on him. Papa, are you kidding me? What? Mama moved to Paris. What? Oh, that's ridiculous. Did you hear what you just said? What? You just told me that Mama told you she was moving to Paris. I never said that. I don't feel like I have a life here. Everyone and everything that I have ever counted on has let me down. And you said, okay. No, I said Lamb was okay. And it was. Oh, good grief. Honestly, Papa, you don't listen. Not true. You don't listen to anyone. Not true. I don't feel like I have a life Stop here. Stop repeating that. All right, I'll admit that sometimes I tune people out, but mostly because they rarely have anything useful or interesting to say. It's empty. What? Her closet's empty. Her drawers are empty. Her perfume's gone. Where's her things? Where did they go? I'm guessing Paris. But what was she going to wear to the party tonight? You didn't notice this? You sleep right there. You live here, too. You didn't notice either. You're her husband. You're in her closet way more than I am. <laughs> Tony Shalhoub, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. I saw you wince at your character saying he doesn't listen to other people, mostly because they don't have anything interesting to say. <laughs> that sounds a little arrogant, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, one of the funny things about your character on the show is, I think... The show is not about your character. Your character is a secondary character on oh, the show, a supporting best. character yes. on the show, right? Yes. And in a lot of shows like this, especially funny ones, which this show is very funny, it would be fine to let the protagonist have the journey. 
right? Like the protagonist gets to go on a journey. Everybody else has a funny thing about them that the audience recognizes. Yeah, and we support that protagonist's, you know, arc, I suppose. And your character has changed a lot in two seasons of the show. Yeah, it's a very, it's rare uh, for for a series, for a character in series television, really. Um, because, as you say, normally you're, you know, you get hired and then you're kind of, you're somewhat limited as to what you're, you know, being called on to to do and what purpose you serve. And for actors, that can be frustrating at times because you, you're the guy that does this or you're the sort of stupid guy or you're the, you know, the Lothario or whatever it is. And you get kind of confined, or, you know, kind of constrained into playing two colors, three if you're very lucky. And uh, I've been fortunate in, in this case, particularly that, you know, they're they're just uh, my my character happens to be in a in a place in his life where he's in he's in transition like and I think it's because of of the transition that Midge is in that you know that my daughter is going through all her changes are impacting all of the people around her and we're not just we're not just stuck in our uh, in our little mode. I was watching the first episode of the second season uh, earlier today uh, where <coughs> you and your daughter travel to Paris and you're wearing an overcoat, a, a brown overcoat with a blue check that um, if they had just showed me that overcoat, I'd be like, yeah, okay. Oh, how many years is the contract for? Like, yes. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I get to wear that overcoat. Yes, yeah, <laughs> sold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and that that speaks to this whole idea that that uh, you know this. I, I like, I love uh, this idea that we're you know we're in the fifth, late fifties. I I uh, I just it's I guess the forties and the fifties have always been a really good those good decades for me in terms of playing characters, and especially today because I think we all need as viewers and as certainly as actors, a respite from present day uh, craziness. And what this, the other thing that this affords us is this, uh, you know, there are no cell phones in this show. There are no computers. I mean, the computers are the size of this room. You know, there's no, uh, there, we're low tech. We're super low tech. And uh, I just find that so refreshing. We've got so much more with Tony Shalhoub still to come. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Tony Shalhoub. He is, of course, an incredibly talented actor. He's been in films like Big Night, The Man Who Wasn't There, and Spy Kids. He also starred on the TV show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That show just concluded its fifth and final season. You can stream it now on Amazon Prime. You were the star of Monk for many seasons. This won't be news to you, Tony. <laughs> I said it as though it might It be. sounds familiar. Yeah, w which was a detective procedural on USA, a comic detective procedural in which your character was the brilliant genius detective who, in part, his genius detecting was colored by his obsessive compulsiveness. And I really think it is one of the 
best of this kind of show that has ever been made. It, it is so hard to make a show like this that is pleasant to so many people that also is sharp and specific and so on and so forth. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it sort of defined what the USA Network even to some extent still is today. But like it's about an incredible specificity and especially in your performance. Thank you. And I wonder what it was when it came to you and how it came to you. Um, the pilot had been, it was first at ABC for a number of years and was kind of languishing there. The, you know, the, it's, with a lot of these things, you know, you it all has to kind of fit together. You have to have uh, the right person and the right, at the right time. And, um, you know, uh, th- that script was just, was just not getting any traction. And then I think an executive uh, was departing ABC and going over to USA and uh, asked to take this property and see if they could develop it. And that was uh, fine. And then, and then I believe it was at ABC. I mean, I'm sorry, I believe it was at USA for a year, you know, before it came to me. You know, a number of people had, they had approached a number of different actors at both networks. Some actors had approached them and it just, it just never worked. I even think Michael Richards, I heard, was circling it for a while or they were circling him. And um, I, you know, I just, it was just fortunate. My uh, manager at the time was reading the pilot for uh, another client of hers. It was, she was actually reading it for uh, the character of Sharona, the assistant. And then while she was reading it, she thought of me and so sent it to me. And uh, I had never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. And then I met with the network and the writers and... Um, then we were off to the races and we had to, you know, I was the first one attached. So they asked me, I, I, I mentioned that I would like to be involved as a producer too, so I could have some input and a voice. And so they asked me to read with people, you know, audition, we were auditioning people for Sharona and Stottlemyre and all the other regulars <clears throat> in which I was happy to do. And, uh, that's how we put it all together. What did you think about it when you first saw it? Well, <clears throat> when I first read it, I didn't really respond to it because I didn't, I thought it was good, but I didn't see my way into it. And I called my manager and I said that. I said, look, I, I, get, I get what you're, I don't, I don't get how, how is this me? And she said, <laughs> very subtle, <laughs> she said, you better read it. I think you should read it again because this is more you than you probably want to admit. And so I did, and I read it a second time, and um, and then it started to become clear. <laughs> and um, you know, and the, the truth is, the, the the script that I read, the pilot script, as I remember, now this is a long time ago, okay. But the script that I read was, um, it wasn't really the pilot that we it wasn't exactly the pilot we shot. It was written more, um, it was broader. It was written, I think it originally was conceived more almost like, almost like Inspector Clouseau-ish thing, except with OCD. It was broader comedy, you know? And uh, that was the part that I felt was, was, was not a good fit for me. 
And uh, I spoke to my manager about this, and and then she said, "Well, you should sit, just sit down. You can sit down with the writers and express this, and you know, tell them what it is about it that it works for you, and how you would like to have them change it, and maybe they will." And uh, and that's exactly what I did, and they were fantastic. They were open, and uh, and I said, "Look, I I I love comedy, but I think we should, you know." maybe tone down the really, really broad stuff and let the comedy come out of the guy's pain and out of the guy's problem. And uh, and also, you have to remember, we're talking about a time when we did this, is right after 9-11, not, not long after 9-11. So culturally, I think, we entered a new level uh, we were entering a, an age of anxiety, of higher anxiety, which this character, I don't, I mean, you know, I, certainly the show, the script and the and the idea was conceived before 9-11, as I said, it laid around for years. But when it came down, came time to actually put it on, do it and put it on the air, people were, you know, I think feeling, they were, we're, we're all in a bit of a state of, uh-oh what now and you know how how fragile is it all and so we enter we kind of enter uh, the 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 mindset of this character how he's been living his entire life really until he met his wife and got better and then she died and then he got worse so but then we were entering also at the same time we were we knew that we were on a slippery slope because we're dealing with OCD which is a very real and tragic kind of debilitating disorder and so you don't want to send that up too much you want to honor the people who have it so we had to you know we we, we just were kind of like holding our breath that it was going to be received by that by those people or by you know that community uh in the right way and um do it in a, do it in a way that we wanted what we were trying to do really was to sort of destigmatize the disorder and um, because the character had so many good qualities and was so talented in so many ways and could make all these gigantic contributions to society um you know but it but maybe just getting out the door taking 15 minutes was would be funny <laughs> you know but we did we i think we, the writers did a really good job and and also the whole creative team because you know, in capturing the tone, um, we found that sweet spot. And we got a lot of very positive feedback from people who suffered from the disorder or people who had family members who did, or even doctors. I get letters from psychiatrists and psychologists and people say, you know, I've referenced your uh, your show in our book, in my book that I'm writing about, you know, mental illness. And, oh, my God. It was... <laughs> It went way beyond what we intended. Yeah, I mean, I think that the challenge, the fact that the, the challenge that the character faces is what leads to the resolution and that the the challenge and the pain inherent in the challenge is real makes the hopefulness of it, you know, which is fundamental to this kind of TV, is that like part of what you're offering is that the problem will be resolved. So it's yeah. comforting in that way. Yeah. And so the fact that you know that you will get that comfort, but that you will get it from something that actually feels like 
might mirror pain that you might have or fear mm. that you might have. Exactly. Um, because we all, I think we all do, many, many people do to a degree. You know, we have these kinds of uh, obsessive compulsive tendencies. Uh, but, but, uh, or, or, or we just get fixated on things or, uh, but we, but many of us have ways of dealing with it and coping with it and filtering it so that it's not as obvious to the rest of the world and we don't voice or, or demonstrate these kinds of things where Monk doesn't have that filter. He just says it and does it and feels it and, and demonstrates it. Let's hear a scene from Monk and my guest, Tony Shalhoub. So in this episode, this is from the seventh season of the show. Wow. Um, Monk's personal assistant, Natalie, helps a thief steal the bicycle, accidentally helps a thief steal the bicycle of a biotech CEO. And so in this clip, Monk and Natalie are getting a tour of the biotech company from one of the lab assistants, who's played by a past guest of this show, brilliant actress, Pamela Adlin. Oh, love her. Dean? Dean Barry founded Beta Vegetech five years ago. So what exactly do you do? We're saving the world. Oh, good for you. I was getting a little worried about the world. Is that a square tomato? Yes, it is. It's a pet project of Dean's. The square shape means that farmers can pack 35% more tomatoes per carton. It's cheaper, more efficient. So, so that means every slice is exactly the same size? How does it taste? Who cares? It's a square tomato. You're doing the Lord's work. Literally. Dean. Uh, Mr. Barry, I just wanted to say I'm sorry about the bite. We're testing new corn seed. They're genetically engineered to sprout in 20 minutes. More or less. What you're seeing is going to revolutionize the agriculture industry as you know it. Congratulations on the square tomato. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. I love Pam. Um, God, I'd forgotten the square tomato. That was it. Is a it's a great line when he says, "I've been feeling a little worried about the world." Whatever it is that he says there. <laughs> I want to play a clip from a movie that you were in. It was a, a much earlier in your career that uh -oh. I no no. This is I love. This is one of my favorite movies. Um, it's a movie called Quick Change from 1990, and um, it's a it's a really it's a really wonderful movie, all told. Um, I think maybe one of, if not Bill Murray's best, maybe Rushmore, but maybe besides Rushmore, Bill Murray's best movie that he ever did, and he co-directed it, and yeah, it's a really great movie. You played a character in this movie that could have been so awful. Um, you played, uh, you're Lebanese American and your character is basically ethnic cab driver. Um, he speaks in nonsense words. Yeah. In, they uh, didn't want it to be an identifiable ethnicity. So. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a very surreal. I mean, like partly the tone of the film saves it from being the awful thing it could have been. Mm -hmm. But I think largely it's saved from the awful thing it could have been by a really wonderful performance by you. Uh, both really funny and like uh, human and humane in a way that it didn't necessarily have to be um, for a cab driver character in a comedy in 1990 um, when those those characters often were just, uh, you know, broad ethnic jokes. Yeah. 
Um, Stereotypical, yeah. Yeah, so I, w- I want to play a clip from it. I don't know how this plays uh, in audio because you're mostly uh, you're mostly quiet because I'm making when big, you're making, I'm making nonsense big faces. Sounds. Yeah, <laughs> um, you got to see the shameless faces I'm making. Yeah, so Bill Murray is a bank robber. He dresses as a clown, robs a bank. With, um, with Gina Davis. With Gina Davis and uh, his best friend, Randy Quaid. Um, and then they all get into a taxi cab and they're having a hard time telling what you, they're, they're trying to get away. They're, they're having a hard time telling what you're saying. They're, they're trying to get to the airport. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's got it. Oh, great. And why don't you take us straight to Sing Sing? Please don't say that. You're going to upset Lewis. Oh, God forbid. Oh, that hard Huh? It's red! Stop! Stop! You don't even understand colors, do you? You don't know red from hell! When I try it, it's There's a real cabin! Stop! Taxi! Oh, yes! Randy Quaid freaks out so much that I think he jumps out the passenger door. You, this was probably a part in your a part of your career where if you get a multiple scene part in a movie, it's my first movie, really. Yeah, you're you're not in a position to question it. Um, but did you think about it at the time? Like, how many movies have a you know a broad a broadly unidentifiable Middle Eastern guy who yells things as a taxi driver? It, no, it didn't. Uh, I was so I, first of all, I love the script. And I really think it is a great movie, an underrated movie. I think it's like a legit great movie. In, like I think d- even leaving aside its rating, which I think is under. Yeah. I think it's a great movie. It's it's a very, very clever movie. Um, the premise itself is 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 brilliant. And it's, you know, it's it reflects New York City in the eighties, uh, very beautifully. And uh in a, in a really genuinely funny way. And, um, but no, I love the idea. And I, I love the idea that when I read the script, when it came to my part, it, there were no lines. It just said, the cabbie speaks and we don't understand. And so when, but I had to audition for it. So I went in and met the casting and the and Bill was there. Bill Murray was there. And, uh, I had to, you know, pe- it was basically a gibberish language. <clears throat> But instead of just, you know, like mumbling and blah, 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 I actually wrote it. I wrote out my lines. I just made up a gibberish language so that I could, so that I would have repeated words or repeated sounds for, you know, what I was supposed to be talking about. You're like, I'm going to Tolkien this thing. Yeah, I just, I just look, this is the only way I'm going to do it and not just look like I'm blathering and mumbling and. Because the cabbie knows what he's saying. <laughs> the cabbie's a real guy. I mean, and I th- uh, it was my first, and it was, I got to tell you this too. It's my first m- movie, I think, and I had auditioned for things. I was doing mostly theater, but <clears throat> I had auditioned for a lot of things. And it's the first time, and maybe the only time where I was offered, you know, was offered the job in the room. That never happens. You know, they say, thank you very much. You go away. You wait a few days. Your agent calls you. Yeah, you have a callback. Yeah, you have a, you have for the offer. They want to give you the part. That's how it goes. But this was, you know, I did actually have a callback for this, maybe two. And uh, but finally on the, whatever the final callback was, Bill Murray says, you want to do this? Because we're good. Let's do it. And uh, 
we had a blast. We shot it all. Most of it was night shoots and in Queens. And uh, I got to work with Jason Robards, who was a, a god to me and inspiration when I was younger. And um, a lot of people in the Stanley Tucci's in this movie, a lot of great people in this movie. And, um, but it was it. I, I made up my own language. Even more from the great Tony Shalhoub after a quick break. Still to come, what inspires Tony Shalhoub to make art? Like, what really gets his juices flowing? He'll tell me when we return. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. My fellow graduates, for 500 episodes, my podcast, The JV Club with Janet Varney, has gathered story after story of all the scandalous things we've done throughout our childhoods. Stories like how Jamila Jamil survived a horrific house party and she was on crutches. Or how Hal Lublin learned a Shakespearean monologue in his pajamas. This is not the speech we approve. Without your love and life tragedies, there would be no podcast. In fact, I have an exclusive look at how Maggie Lawson's mom confronted her after a sneaky basement meetup with her crush. Spill the tea, JV. Security. Uh, uh, listen to the JV Club with Janet Varney Thursdays on Maximum Fun. Class of forever. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Tony Shalhoub. He was the star of Monk, Wings, and recently The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is streaming now on Amazon Prime. Did you ever watch the movie A Thousand Clowns with Jason Robards? Only about 50 times. It's yeah. the reason I became an actor. And that was, that, was, that was at a time when I was in high school when, you know, you couldn't, we didn't have, you know, VHS and there wasn't any of that. When you saw a movie, you waited a year. You know, it was on TV. You waited another year for it to come around on TV again, maybe. And I was devoted to that film. And uh, I, it was, it was, it, it was a, it really moved the needle for me. Now, when you say a thousand clowns made you want to become an actor, I knew it's a movie about Jason Robards plays a Single. moderately unsuccessful comedy writer who needs to get a job because he's responsible for taking care of his teenage son. No, he's his it's teenage actually, uh, uh, nephew. It's his sister's kid. Yeah. Um, his sister left. Yeah. yeah. And so he is basically facing this choice in his life, which is he has the opportunity to get a job on something that does not meet his artistic standards, <laughs> um, which you know, are difficult to pin down maybe because he's a comedy guy, you know? <laughs> and he is struggling to accept the responsibilities of adulthood. It's, he knows that he has to, and he knows how important it is because there's this kid and he's falling in love as well. And it is very, very painful for him and difficult for him to be frank with himself about that and do what he has to do. Compromise. Yeah. yeah. And I know a ton of comedy people who love this movie. I've had many a conversation with longtime Conan, now Colbert, late show writer Brian Stack about it, for example. Oh. What a real funny guy. And I think for a lot of comedy people, it is a deeply difficult film to watch yeah. because it asks them to confront their own complicity <laughs> in the kind of irresponsibility of creating art, especially completely frivolous art. 
with their life. So you saying that it makes you way to want to become an artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's a movie about the horrors and pains that come from the self-centeredness of wanting to be an artist. Exactly. Yeah. That's how sick I am. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you where did you first see it? Did you first see it on TV? Yeah. I I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It was I think it was in high school when I first saw it. And uh I just remember being so struck by it and those performances and and just the whole message behind it, the whole idea about it behind it. You know, in a sense, you know, that that's always that's always uh the dilemma of the creative person. I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's what Big Night was about. And, you know, that's, that sort of balancing act that you have to, uh, that you have to deal with between art and commerce. It's, that's, you know, one, one can rarely exist without the other. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a ongoing challenge. Yeah. I mean, not even just art and commerce, but also the the solipsism and self-regard that's required to think, oh, I could make things and that could be my whole life. <laughs> like, you know, the amount that you have to dedicate yourself to being an artist to be an artist, mm-hmm. you know, and the kind of presumptiveness of that and the tension that that creates with your responsibilities to others to your community to and that's i think why i whenever i watch a thousand clouds i cry like just like a river but i think it's 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 even beyond that because what you're talking about is it it implies a, a a choice a decision kind of an intellectual decision and and from my my experience, you know, the reality is, is that that's certainly that's there, but, you know, the part, part of the thing about creativity and, and the pursuit of art, uh, is, you know, there's a compulsion there too. you know, people can't help it. They, they have to do it. They, I mean, real, you know, the, the really great people, the good people, uh, and even the maybe not so good people who just have the compulsion, I'm not sure. But there's a thing where it's 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 less of a it's less of an intellectual decision. It's just I need to do something. I I need to create this. I need to do it. And if that's there, you're screwed, because then you you know then you can't stop. And if you do stop, then you're just setting yourself up for a life of a different kind of torture. Well, Tony, we're out of time. I didn't even ask. I mean, you got Damn. nine brothers I, and sisters. I, I didn't even I, mention I, it this whole time. I've just gotten started. Normally, that would have been the whole hour. Um, I'm very grateful to you for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. Uh, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you. My conversation with Tony Shalhoub. All five seasons of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel are streaming on Amazon Prime right now. You can also catch him in the new movie, Flamin' Hot. It's the film story of Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Stream it now on Hulu. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although 
This week, we went to Anne Margaret's house uh, to interview her. So look forward to our interview recorded live on tape from Anne Margaret's house coming up in a couple of weeks. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow here at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is composed and provided to us by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation, thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries. Bullseye can be found on all of your favorite platforms, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. Follow us there. Share our interviews. If you liked one of the interviews today, please share it with a friend. It makes a big difference for us. Tell somebody you like the show. Don't keep it secret. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.